Okay. So this week's Torah portion is Parshish Boy. Boy means to come. So right away, I want to share with you that there's an interesting, an interesting numerology here. Because our sages tell us that the word boy, which is two letters, the bet and the aleph, which is two plus one is three. And that is because in this Torah portion, we study the last three plagues. Last week we had seven plagues, and this week we have the last three plagues. Now, I want to share with you that, and, and I sent out my first sermon for the week because this uh, Friday I'm going to focus more on the auspicious day of the 10th of Shvat, um, and you know, the day that the Rebbe accepted uh, to be Rebbe. So I wanted to do the Torah portion before. And one of the things I spoke about in that uh, sermon video is the interesting part that over here, Pa'em, God does not send any message to, Par to Paro. So why is Hashem telling Moshe Rabbeinu, come to Pharaoh? So Rashi immediately says, skip ahead. Um, and then that's what Hashem was telling him. Um, and then there today I shared in that sermon that according to the Zohar, this had nothing what to do with Paro. This was about Moshe Rabbeinu um, accepting his fears, facing his fears, acting, uh, you know, not by his fears. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I say Bo El Paro. It doesn't say go to Paro. It says come, meaning come with me. Now, an interesting thing here is that, and I'm going to talk about this later also, that all the plagues have dual meanings. And I saw over here a teaching from the first Lubavitcher Rebbe that I just learned this week, that he says like this. He says that there are some times that in the Torah portion, we have both. We have God telling Moses to warn Pharaoh. And sometimes we just have the Torah telling us that Moses did it. Now, obviously, if Moses did it, then obviously he warned him, right? Because that's, that's, the, uh, that's the way it works. And sometimes you don't have it. So it's really interesting, according to Hasidus and Kabbalah, what that means. Why are some things said explicitly in the Torah? And why are some things alluded to hinted to what is going on here. So I want to just share with you that one of the interesting things that we are taught is that which is written in the Torah, it's because it's from a lower level which can clothe itself within articulation and letters. It is specifically that which is not written in the Torah and only alluded to in the Torah that comes from a much higher, much higher level than if, than the actual what is written in the Torah. And therefore it cannot be expressed definitively and, are, and, and completely articulated but rather it has to be done through a hint, through a alluding to it. 
And, and on that level, let's look at what we have here with the plague of locusts. What we have here is that in verse 3, 4, and 5, and 6, we only have here that Moses is warning. But what's interesting here is that according to Hasidus, what I just learned actually just today, here's something amazing. The word Arba means locust. However, what is amazing is that in the world of Kabbalah, the deepest level of Arba also means from the word to multiply. And it's the first time I ever saw the teaching that even though the physical manifestation of Arba was locust and it was obviously retribution, however, you should know that its true original source of Arba is from the word that God said to Isaac, Ki arbe ezaracha, I will make plentiful. Arbe from the word rabba, from the word a lot. So it's interesting to realize that what's going on here is levels within levels and within levels. And therefore, in this time, you don't have the all the processes of what's going on here that God told Moses, Moses told Aaron, and, and Moses, uh, Moses and Aaron told Pharaoh, and then they actually did it. But rather, you do not have here that God told Moses. It just says that Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and this is what they said. Because in the ultimate source in which God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, that comes from the highest level of absolute magnitude, arbe, to be multiplied infinitely, and hence that couldn't connect with expression. Now, in case I'm not making myself clear, which I often am stuck doing, so I want to just be clear over here. What I'm sharing with you is that everything, everything has a very spiritual source of positivity, even the 10 plagues of retribution. Sometimes it's so high that it cannot be definitively articulated in the words of the Torah, which is why there are so many things in the Torah that we learn out from an extra letter Sometimes we learn it out from the crowns on the letter. And sometimes we learn it out from the musical notes. That's only oral tradition. It's not even written anywhere in the Torah. And so too, the vowels are not written in the Torah. And now I'm sharing with you because ultimately, if it's written in the Torah, it means that as high as it may be and as holy as it may be, it is expressive. It can be articulated. While that which the Torah does not say and we extrapolate it, it's because that comes from the ultimate heights, which is beyond being definitively articulated. By the way, parenthetically speaking, because it's not connected with this portion, but it's connected with the teaching of the Altareba on this portion, 
he explains that's why the laws that the mitzvot, there are seven mitzvot besides the 613 mitzvot of the Torah, there are the seven mitzvot of our sages, which does not say in the Torah. Now, a little bit of numerology. 613 plus 7 is 620. The word keter, which means crown, which in Kabbalah refers to the supernal, to the supernal crown, which is encompassing circular and infinite rather than linear and permeating. So here is the secret of what I'm sharing with you. That which comes only from the wisdom, the supernal wisdom, can be articulated in the Torah. And those are the 613 commandments which the Torah distinctly says. However, the seven mitzvahs of the sages that they had to reveal to us, but it's not in the Torah written, that's because that comes from the highest level of the supernal crown, which is circular and infinite. Hence, our sages tell us on the verse that God says that that means that God loves to him, it's sweeter the revelations of our sages that they found, which is hidden in the Torah, more than that which he himself, God himself, revealed to us in the Torah. Hence, we now have a whole deeper appreciation of the oral law. The oral law, by many people, we look at it, oh, the written law, that's dictated by God. But the oral law, that is the work of mankind. God forbid. Ultimately, everything has to come from the tradition from Moses that was taught in heaven in 40 days, and then he brought it down to us. Well, then how come some things he brought down in writing and sometimes and some things he brought down only in oral tradition? Well, now you know. Because quite the contrary, that which is oral and could not be written down, it's because it's so much deeper, so much more abstract and high. So now you can understand how much God loves when we work the Torah and we work the Torah and we extrapolate that which is hidden within the Torah. Now, with that being said, let's go back to our Torah portion and let me be conscious of the time. So Moses goes ahead and the locust is brought and the locust is there. And by the way, I wanna share with you that Pharaoh at that point was already being nudged by his people. Come on, negotiate, give in. Don't you see what's going on? And Pharaoh did try to negotiate. But of course, Moses coming from the direct word of God wasn't in a position to be able to negotiate. So Pharaoh again backs down. The next thing is the plague of darkness. Now, the plague of darkness was very unique in, in a couple of ways. Number one, every plague lasted for a full week, a full cycle of nature. The plague of darkness only lasted for six days. Number two, the plague of darkness had two stages. The first stage, it was only dark on a visible level. 
meaning it was dark, there was no light, but it wasn't tangible darkness. And the second three days, the darkness became a thick, a palatable, touchable thickness that the Egyptians actually couldn't move. It's as if they were stuck in foam and literally couldn't move. Now, the Jewish people, it says, had light. Now, I want to share with you uh, an interesting concept about this light. Soon, I'm going to share with you the depths of this, of this uh, whole plague of darkness. But now, I want to share with you the secret of this light. What happened was that God told Abraham, for four generations, your children will be um, slaves in a land not theirs, to a nation not theirs, and, and, and then they will leave with wealth. Now, Kabbalistically speaking, I already explained this in the previous classes, that the wealth on a spiritual level means that through the process of being refined, we were able to elevate sparks. But on a physical level, God promised Abraham that the Jewish people are going to leave with great wealth. Now, based on that, God told Moses to tell the Jewish people to ask from their Egyptian neighbors for things, gold, silver, all the stuff. Now, in order the Jewish people should know what to ask and what not to ask, so the, the, um, the light that the Jewish people had allowed for them to go into the Egyptian houses, look for things, not take them, but later to be able to ask the Egyptian in this and this drawer, you have this and this thing, can I borrow that? And again, in this, again, there's a question, why did God say to borrow if God wasn't planning for them to give back? Um, that's a question, but either way, and, and it's discussed. And there's actually a whole story in the Talmud that, that, that a king wanted to force the Jews to pay back. And, and uh, there was a whole debate between um, the king and the rabbis because the Egyptians said, listen, it says clearly in their Torah, they borrowed things from us. They never paid back. They should have to pay back. And then the rabbis answered, well, actually, it says in our Torah that Pharaoh originally promised to pay the Jews for their labor, and he never did. So let's figure out who owes who more money. And that's how that ended. But interesting enough that once again, God was asking, just like he said, let them go for three days. He didn't say they're going forever. And again, the concept of let them go and let them borrow, not say that we're taking this and we're not coming back with it. And, and simply speaking, and I know that I sent out a, uh, an epiphany moment about the horrifics of denial and what that can cause us to lose. However, I want you also to share with you all that there's a time where denial actually is a good thing. And what that means is, I'm just going to share with you, you guys know that uh, I deal with addiction recovery and I share about it and I share the knowledge about it. I want to share with you, there's an interesting thing in, a, in addiction recovery. You never swear off forever because you won't be able to, but rather you just focus on the day. And the reason is because when we're not in power to say never again, 
then don't try to do that because you're not going to be able to. However, if presently what I can focus on is the next 24 hours, well, then that's what I'm going to tell myself. No, then you ask yourself, what am I, stupid? I know that the real plan is that I'm planning to do it for one day for the rest of my life. So who am I fooling? I'll tell you who I'm fooling. I'm fooling the part within me that can't digest that right now. All that part in me can digest is 24 hours, just 24 hours. So I want you to know that denial in the sense of not lying, not completely being oblivious, but rather to realize that the only way to eat an elephant, if it was kosher, would be mouthful by mouthful. So it's not denial, it's just saying, place in front of my vision only that which I can deal with. When I finish with that, bring me the next piece. And that's what God was doing here. And that's an important lesson to know, when am I going in denial? And when am I just teaching myself to focus on the one present thing in front of me? And if you want to know how you can know, it's very simple. Are you doing something about it or not? If you're not doing something about it, then you're in a very horrific denial. If you're doing something about it, but only about this piece right here in front of me, that's a good denial. Now, let's go a little bit further. Now Pharaoh is again saying, okay, let's negotiate. And here Moses is already pushing him to realize that no, it's not just about us. It's not just about our women. It's not just about our children. It's also about our livestock. And presently, after all the work that we did here, we're also taking some of your livestock in case that's what God needs from us, wants from us. And Pharaoh blows a casket and says, you will never come back here to see me. Now, my grandfather of blessed memory always would share this Rashi with me. He just loved it. Moshe Rabbeinu said, Kein libarta, you spoke correctly. And Rashi says, Yofa debarta, you spoke nicely in the right time. I won't be coming back to you. This time you'll be coming to me. And I want to share with you how important what you're about to hear is. He did not say what I said. I made a mistake and said that he told Pharaoh, you will come to me. That's not what he said. What he actually said was that your servants are going to come to me. Now, the question is that in the real history is that Pharaoh himself, who was a first, firstborn, panicked, and he himself went looking for Moses. So why didn't Moses tell him straight, you're going to come looking for me? And here is an important concept. Pharaoh was a king. And if Pharaoh was a king, regardless of what kind of problem he was, he was a king because God gave him greatness. Now, if God gave him greatness, we need to respect that. I want to share with you an interesting teaching that I struggled with a lot until I saw how the Rebbe handled it. 
There is a teaching that says, Rebbe Mechabed Ashirim. Rebbe, and I don't mean now our Rebbe, Rebbe refers to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who lived at the time right after the destruction of the Second Temple. He's the author of the Mishnah, the foundation of the oral law. And it says that he would give honor to rich people. Now, the question is that in our minds, most often, someone who's going to give specific honor to rich people, mm, where's your spirituality, my friend? If it's about spirituality, then what's the difference that this guy's rich and this guy's poor? Look who they are, not what they have. And I was bothered by that. And then all of a sudden, the Rebbe agreed to make a special, a special talk for people from all over the world that would give money, X amount of money, to a specific fund, which was used only to open up new Chabad houses around the world where communities were struggling to afford them. And then all of a sudden, like, wow, I've never in all the years and in everything I read about the Rebbe, I have never, ever come across the Rebbe doing anything specific for someone who's rich and giving money. Not only that, but back in the 60s, when a million dollars was a million dollars, and someone gave the Rebbe a million dollars to use for his outreach program, and then he wrote to the Rebbe, of course I have no questions, and of course I trust the Rebbe, but I'd like for the Rebbe to tell me where this money went. And all of a sudden, $1 million was returned to him. Either you gave it to us to do our work or you still have strings attached. And then I wanna share with you another story. There was a man, David Chase, who was very interesting and he was the one that actually headed this new group that I'm telling you about. It was called Machni Yisrael Fund. And amazingly, this, this guy, he was very close to the Rebbe. He spoke to the Rebbe, the Rebbe gave, you know, a lot was going on there with him. And he was the one that came and brought to the Rebbe that we should uh, have a, a groundbreaking to build a new 770, so much bigger, so much better. Until this very day, the rock that the Rebbe used as the groundbreaking is cemented in the wall because ultimately the Rebbe pulled the plug on it. Now, why the Rebbe pulled the plug on it, I don't know. I really don't know. But I could tell you one thing, that the secretary who was working on this, Rabbi Krinsky, made the mistake of asking the Rebbe, and what should we tell David Chase? The Rebbe's response was, he said his first name and his last name, which the Rebbe didn't refer to himself by name. The Rebbe said his first name and his last name really doesn't get, what's the word? Um, in English, doesn't get um, flustered. Let's just use the word flustered by David Chase. Yes, the Rebbe loves David Chase. Yes, the Rebbe dealt with David Chase and the most loving, you'll see pictures. But if something has to be done, then money is not going to make a difference. Hence, I was like, whoa, the Rebbe is making a Machni Israel fund, a talk where only the wealthy who give money can go into? 
That's unheard of by the Rebbe in Lubavitch. It's just unheard of. And then the Rebbe spoke. And the Rebbe spoke about this concept, Rebbe Mechabed Ashirim. And the Rebbe is telling this to the wealthy people. This was his talk to them. And the Rebbe said like this. The Rebbe said, why would a sage, someone connected to God, by the way, Rebbe himself, the one from the times of the Mishnah, was extremely wealthy. Why would he have any special honor for someone who's wealthy? Either the guy's a mensch or he's not a mensch. Either he's, he's a kind person or he's not a kind person. What's the difference whether he was wealthy or not? And the Rebbe explained like this. The Rebbe explained that if a person's wealthy, what it means on a spiritual level is only one thing. God is trusting him to be his banker. God is trusting him to be the one which will distribute this money to God's causes. And all of a sudden, the Rebbe explains, there is no respect to a wealthy person because of the money he has in the bank. But rather, it's the fact that God is telling you that you can be my banker. That is to be respected. An interesting twist. Moses is giving respect to Pharaoh, but he's giving respect to Pharaoh not because of, I am inferior to this king. No. But Moses is looking him in the eye and saying, you're a king because God gave that to you. God sees something in you. I'm going to honor that. An interesting concept. Let's just go along because, whoa, I'm really running late here. So let's talk about the next plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Now, I want to share with you what happens here. Moses said something without God telling him that he can say that. And what was that? Moses told Pharaoh, you're right. I won't be back. And God says, whoa, little problem here. You still have to give him another warning for the next plague. So God reveals himself to Moses right then and there in front of Pharaoh and tells this to him so that he can tell Pharaoh the plague. So it's interesting how God is so supportive of us when we're working his mission. Now, an interesting concept here is the midnight. Why the midnight? Why, why, why the midnight? At midnight sharp, you know, this is like, a, you know, some type of Disney movie at midnight sharp. What's midnight? So I want to share with you what's going on here. What's going on here is that midnight doesn't exist. Either it's the last second of the first half of the night or it's the first second of the second half of the night. There is no such thing as a minute which is neither the first half nor the second half. Hence, this is really what we call a twilight concept. In Kabbalah, what that means is that we're now dealing with that which is above and beyond time. However, to be more specific, that which is above and beyond time isn't 
really ultimately high. That which is above and beyond time that can manifest itself within a specific time, that means that this is so truly infinite in which infinite and finite coexist. Now we're talking about God's finger coming to play. Now, all of this is beautiful that I'm sharing with you, Kabbalah, things that were given to me freely and I'm giving to you freely. However, it's very important to understand what does this do for us? So what I want to share with you is something very powerful about time. Time is a finite vessel that can carry within it an infinite experience. In one moment, I can create a legacy that will live far beyond my physical lifetime. Hence, we need to understand that while God gives us only finite concepts, finite time, finite experiences, God tells us that we have it within us to use these finite moments to create infinite change, infinite experiences. And that ultimately is the true secret of life. We're born at a specific moment, we die at a specific moment, and you can count the hours and the minutes and the seconds and the days and the weeks and the months and the years in between birth and death. But you should know that in those finite moments, we can truly defy the grave by creating infinite, infinite experiences, that which will go on forever and ever. So that's the secret of what midnight is. It's really what all time is about. It's the omnipotent peace of God within us expressing itself in our finite life realm. Now, I want to share with you an interesting teaching. In the Haggadah for the Passover Seder, we say the following, Now, one simple interpretation of that means God smote the Egyptians in their firstborn. However, grammatically, that sentence reads, God smote the, the first, uh, the Egypt with their firstborns. And what does that mean? What that means is that God actually used the firstborns to smite the Egyptians. What does that mean? So you should know that before Passover, the Shabbat before Passover is called Shabbat Hagadol. And the reason is because the Jewish people left Egypt on the 15th, hence on Thursday, the 15th, hence Shabbat was the 10th. On the 10th day, five days before the plague hit, the firstborns said, uh-uh, uh-uh, Pharaoh, we're not letting you do this. We're not going to die because of your stubbornness. And the firstborns started a civil war. Now, why is that such a big thing? Out of all the miracles that took place, oh, this is called Shabbat Hagadol, the big Shabbat. 
Why is it big Shabbat? Because the big miracle happened. Really? Really? Out of everything that happened, this is the big miracle? A civil war started? And the answer is that ultimately speaking, and we're going to talk about this now with the darkness. Ultimately speaking, the miracle is never when God has to break, but rather when we allow ourselves to be transformed. The fact that the Egyptians fought for the Jews, starting with them first being the ones that tortured the Jews, that is a big miracle. Now, I want to just quickly share with you two other concepts very quickly, because I really want to get to, to this one concept that we just started with the darkness. So you'll forgive me that I'm not really going through everything. I just want to share with you that God tells Moses about the mitzvah of the new moon. So just that you know, the Jewish calendar is very, very unique in the sense that it's an overlapping of two cycles. There's a month annual cycle, and then there's a year annual cycle. In other words, the first month of the year is not Rosh Hashanah. In Jewish calendar, the new year is not 115771. Rather, it's 715771, which is like, how do you start a year in the middle of the year? But that's the way the Jewish calendar works. Because from Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, God gave them the month, it's called actually the month of the mighty ones, the month of the Eitan, because they calendar only had Rosh Hashanah was 1-1, one, one, whatever year it was. But when God took the Jewish people out of Egypt, he now gave them a total new calendar, which is that the month of Nisan, which is the month of Passover, should be called the first month. Hence, Rosh Hashanah becomes the first day of the seventh month. Just quickly, why? Because in ultimate experience of what's going on when the Jewish people are at Mount Sinai, you need to understand that the word Shana comes from the word Shinuyim, a full cycle which has all changes within it. All the four seasons, everything is in there. So it's a regular, predictable cycle. However, the concept of Chodesh, which literally we say means month, comes from the word Chadash, which means new. Hence, the sun never changes. The moon is constantly changing. Now, constantly changing, I mean with illumination. The moon is the moon, right? Now, what does that mean to us? So I want to share with you something that we know today that is so important. Newton focused on predictability. If we really understand things and monitor things, we know that we can't control things, but we can predict things. That was the old science. And we believe that about ourselves. We're hardwired. We are who we are. Things are what they are. Quantum physics opened up a whole new cycle in which we now know that instead of reality being predictable because of uncontrollable things, we now know that the real process is that we can create 
the future. That's what quantum physics is saying. Everything we thought is hardwired is really softwired. And hence, with hard work, being willing to be uncomfortable, we can change. Our thoughts can create our future rather than our pedigree and our, exp and, and our environment controlling and predicting our future. Hence, you now know that Newton and quantum physics is the difference between Shana and Chodesh. Shana says it is what it is. We're just going to do the best we can within it. Chodesh says you can make something new. Now, one more point, 840. We're doing good. One more point I want to share with you on this note. So there is an amazing, an amazing book called Sefer HaChinuch. Now, what this Sefer HaChinuch does, it's interesting, I once went through a cycle to go through it. It works portion by portion of the Torah, and it lists the mitzvahs in that portion. So many, Maimonides, for example, he doesn't list the first portion to be fruitful and multiply, which is in Genesis. He lists the first mitzvah as the one to be the first of the Ten Commandments. I am God, you God. The Chinuch doesn't do that. He goes portion by portion the mitzvah. Now, the way the Chinuch works is very simple. He gives you the verse. He gives you some details. And he gives you a moral lesson. Now, in this week's Torah portion, we talk about the Paschal Lamb, the Passover sacrifice. And there's a mitzvah there. The etzem loisishperubo. If you want to chew on the bones, uh-uh. You can't break a bone to get out the marrow. You know, for those who enjoy cholent, there's nothing like some good marrow bones in a cholent. Now, you're not allowed to do that. It is a biblical prohibition to break the bone. He quotes this, he explains it, and then he gives insight. But this time he gives insight with a question. He says that the logic, the soul behind this mitzvah is that on Passover, we're all free men, we're kings, and therefore kings don't chew on bones. You're hungry, you just order another full steak. Okay, so it's the concept of being broad, not poverty. Then he asks the question, what, the Torah is playing games with us? We're going to make believe we're rich. The guy was saving up for the last six months so he can afford the wine and the matzah. And now he got himself a piece of chicken. The guy's poorer than poor, but he wants to celebrate the, the, the Passover Seder as best as he can. Uh-uh-uh. Don't chew on the bone. Why don't chew on the bone? Eh, you're hungry? Order another piece. What other piece? What are we playing games here? And here he gives one of the most deepest insights to understand Jewish religion. Jewish religion is not a religion of reaction. Rather, it's a religion of proaction. Now, let me share with you what this means. I cannot tell you as a Chabadnik how many times I've asked a person, would you like to put on tefillin? Eh, it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't feel it. If I feel it, I'll do it. 
He says like this, Ki lev ha'adam nimshach achar pe'ulatav. The heart of man follows the action, not the action follows the heart. And he gives an amazing example. Take a stingy person, a nasty person, and put him in charge of the community fund, which has to know who, which people are poor and give them food for Shabbat. Because this person is going to be doing actions of kindness and compassion, his heart will eventually become soft and compassionate. You can't do this job of compassion for 30 years and still be nasty. Then he goes to say, and now take a kind person and make him the warden in a prison house whose job is simply in order to stay alive, he has got to be as tough as nails, strict and mean. The Chinuch says that this kind person will become a mean person. Hence he says, we're not playing rich, but rather follow what I shared with you about quantum physics. Follow what I shared with you about that God gave us now a cycle of chodesh, create, make, don't just accept. And now you understand that the reason why we put on tefillin is not because we feel close to God, but rather we put on tefillin in order that we should be close to God. We don't care for people because we are caring and sensitive people. We care for people in order that we should become caring and sensitive people. Hence, we now understand that all the mitzvahs, when people ask me, what does it mean to God if I don't feel it? I'm just doing it because he told me to. I'm just doing it because you asked me to and I want to do you a favor. Will that be meaningful for God? And my answer is not only will it be meaningful for God, but more importantly, it will be meaningful for you because it will change you. For the heart of man follows the action. And we should never live our life with only having our actions limited to that which my heart presently can feel. Now, with this being said, I want to also talk to you about tefillin. We talk about this week's Torah portion about putting on tefillin. And it's interesting. Someone met with me um, this past Sunday. And he told me he's on a spiritual journey. He wants to learn. And then he asked me, what's the first thing I should do? And I asked him, do you have tefillin? And he says, yeah. I, says, do you put, I asked him, do you put it on? He says, no. Excuse me, I actually just got it from someone. I don't know how. I said, come to my apartment later and I'll set it to the right size and put on tefillin. If you're asking me where to start, I'll tell you, start with putting on tefillin. Now, putting on tefillin means he's going to take a black box. He's going to wrap it onto his hand. He's going to wrap it onto his head. He's going to mumble words in Hebrew that he has no idea. 
The man just told me he wants to have a spiritual experience. What spiritual experience is that going to be? And I told him, do you do morning meditation and prayers? And he said, yes, that's part of his spiritual program. And I said to him, well, then it's important that it shouldn't just be a spiritual void of physical. Let's add on to it a, a spiritual action of physicality. Do this because God said that by doing this, you will be connected to me. Again, the same concept, keeping it spiritual through creation and not reaction. Let's do acts of spirituality beyond what we presently feel. And now let's go finally to the darkness. I shared with you earlier that the plagues had a dual purpose. The reason why the 10 plagues existed simply as we tell the story is only because of Egypt. God is bringing these plagues in order to break Egypt. By the way, forgive me for interrupting myself, but I see that Alejandro is present. So I wanna use this moment to dedicate the rest of this Dvar Torah class to his father's soul. His yard site is, uh, is imminently. So uh, I'm gonna dedicate it. R um, uh, Arthur, uh, Alejandro, if you want to unmute for a moment, just speak his name, please come with me, please. Shkoria, Aria Lev Ben Malka. Okay, so now, forgive me for that interruption. I just noticed that he came. I want to share with you what is the real purpose of the plagues. Was the plagues only for the Egyptians? Really? God couldn't break the Egyptians in just boom, done. Guys, kids, we're out of here. So there's a deep teaching that part of this, part of this concept of the 10 plagues wasn't just for the Egyptians. It was for the Jewish people. The Jewish people had to go through this 10 plagues. They had to experience, not the suffering. Some opinions say that the Jews also uh, suffered from the first three plagues. Rambam says only from the third one. But the point that I'm trying to say is that over here, this plagues also were here to help the Jews. So first of all, you should know that I shared with you about the plague of darkness, that there was a purpose for the Jews. Another thing I want to share with you is that only one out of five people to, I'm sorry, sorry. Whatever, Dean, I'm sorry, you're texting me and I, I, can't, I can't see what you're texting me right now. Um, also, the, the, the process was that there is um, four-fifths of the Jews that chose not to leave Egypt. But because God told Abraham that no Jew will be left in Egypt, so therefore their choice was to be able to die rather than to face the change of going outside of Egypt. But be it as it may... The, the plague of darkness was there so that the four-fifths that didn't want to leave would, be, would die and the Jews would bury them and the Egyptians wouldn't see. Another concept, which, by the way, in itself 
I would love to sit and spend time with. Unbelievable. Four-fifths of the people said, I'd rather die than go into the unknown. Wow. Such a deep understanding on why it's so difficult to do change. Now, what I want to share with you is that the Jewish people had to experience darkness, had to experience that within darkness there is light, and had to experience that it's within our depth and our capacity to connect with the light within darkness. There is a great, and I don't remember his name, forgive me, I actually quoted on Shabbos and someone who did know it shared, there is a great philosopher who says, I will never trust a world that has no suffering. The Jewish people are about to become a Jewish people, a nation taken forth from a nation. Now, if the Jewish people are going to be born on only experiencing the light of God, we would never have been able to be an eternal nation. There's a story of a person, I know who it is, that he had to deal with someone who experienced a miracle and he told the rabbi, because of this miracle, I believe in God and I'm going to put on tefillin. Happens to be again tefillin. And this rabbi said, told his son, who was the one who dealt with this person, ask him if next time it rains on his parade, is there still a God? The people who can only have a God that teaches me and deals with me in a way of pleasant light, we can't be God's nation. If we can't understand that there is darkness, but within darkness there is light, and it may be painful to experience that light. It may be painful to have to dig through the darkness, but you should know that in Egypt, I already showed you that when there is darkness, if you are adamant to know that within everything that comes from God, there is light, you will find that light and find that that light that comes from darkness, to quote King Solomon, is even greater than the light which comes from light. And hence, God says in Genesis, and he saw the light and it was good. He saw the darkness and it was very good. That's not the words in the verse. It just says in the verse, and God saw and it was very good. And our sages say, good, this is light. Very good, this is darkness. And hence, really once again, Let's go back to Newton versus quantum physics. If we can only see the hardwire black and white reality, if we can only see that it is what it is and the best I can do is make the best out of it. If God gave me lemons, I'm going to make lemonade. Well, what's about if I don't want to only be making lemonade in my life? 
What if I want to really, really be able to share the inner peace of God within me with the universe? Hence, we look at that which tells us that our situation is dark and we ask ourselves, how can this darkness not only be good, but be very good? Now, the question is, where do I take the chutzpah to talk this way? I just listened today to a, a video talk of Warren Buffett telling, I guess it was students, that when you get old, you realize it's not about how much money you have. And I thought to myself, I wish that I could have enough money to be able to say that. <laughs> but anyway, who am I to say this? So I want to share with you. I know we, we had a conversation in shul this past week for those who were there. You know, people think that Orthodox Jews growing up in an Orthodox community, protected environment, how dark can it get? <laughs> Surprise! I want to share with you that I personally, just recently, and I'm talking about recently as today, and tomorrow it's not going to be over. I'm going through a very difficult experience. No one gets scared. It's not a health issue. It's not any issue. It's a growth issue. It's a birthing issue. And if I wouldn't believe what I am telling you now, I wouldn't have the right to tell this to you. But what I could tell you is, that I really had this amazing experience to be able to look at myself and say, I have a choice here. I can only see the darkness and the pain or I can choose to say, okay, not only what good can come out of this, what very good can come out of this? How can this throw me into a growth and a breakthrough that I could never do if things were only sweet. Hence, the importance of the plague of darkness. People, thank you.